Jock, thank you very much. I know that um, you were working hard at that reading yesterday, so thank you very much indeed for that. And a warm welcome to Absalom. Uh, It's lovely to have uh, our connection with Uganda restored after a brief interlude. Uh, It's lovely to have you with us. So do please keep your Bibles open uh, at 1 Samuel 16, and uh, I'm going to pray and we'll look at the passage together. Well, may the the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts this morning be now and always acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the lies in our culture today is the belief that all points of view are equally valid. Uh, The idea behind it, I think, is that um, I look at things from where I stand uh, based on my background and my experiences and you look at things um, from where you stand based on your particular background and your experiences. We're looking at the same things. We're looking at the same events. We're considering the same facts but we see them differently. We've got very different points of view. And uh, the culture says to us very loudly and clearly that the mature, modern and tolerant approach is for us to agree that all points of view are equally valid. But is that really true? For example, one important subject on which people have very different opinions is the person and work of Jesus Christ. One point of view is that Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler of the universe, that he's the the saviour that all human beings need, and he is the judge of all people everywhere. But uh, there are lots of very different points of view about that, and I know you're aware of it. And all these other points of view have one thing in common. That Jesus is actually none of the things that the first point of view says that he is. So today, uh, people are saying, uh, those opinions about Jesus Christ are just different points of view. They're different ways of seeing the same thing. And they're all equally valid. But are they? Uh, The answer in our passage today is that they are not. Now last Sunday morning we began a new series in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel and I'm extremely grateful to our brother White for helping us to see how these two books fit into the Bible story. Uh, Because this morning and for the rest of our series we're going to focus much more closely on the life of King David. But before we do that, there are, I think, a couple of important questions we need to ask. The first question is, why look at the life of David at all? Uh, What's the point of reading about a king who lived and died 3,000 years ago? I guess there are probably several different answers we might give to that question. For example, we might say that there is the argument from literature... After all, the account of David's life 
is recorded for us in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles and the first two chapters of 1 Kings. It is in fact the longest and most comprehensive narrative in all of ancient literature dealing with a single human life. And that's before we even consider the fact that David wrote at least 73 of the Psalms. So the argument from literature is obviously significant, but of course St Barnabas is not a book club, so we need a better reason than that. So what then about the argument concerning David's relationship with Jesus? Uh, David is the dominant human figure in the ancestry of Jesus. I wonder if you knew that. David's name appears 58 times in the New Testament. And many of those references uh, deal with his relationship with Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and offspring of David. So now I think we're getting a little bit warmer. If Jesus considered his relationship with David to be significant, well, so should we. But I think there's another reason why we're going to find a study of David's life to be helpful that's got to do with our very purpose as human beings. Uh, The book of Genesis tells us that God made man to rule over his creation and under his authority. That's why we're here. But of course, at the fall, we lost our ability to do it. And in a very real sense, the rest of the Bible is concerned to show what God has done about that, to restore to us the very purpose for which we were made. So that, when we come to the New Testament... The picture we find there is of Christians ruling and reigning with King Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what we were all created for. But while we wait for the new creation, the pattern for how God rules over the world today through an earthly king is given to us with remarkable clarity, I think, in the life of David. If you doubt the relevance of this, uh, listen to these words from an article written by a very prominent atheist. He says this, and I quote, As an atheist, I truly believe that Africa needs God. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, the change is good. End quote. Bit of an own goal, probably, from an atheist bit of muddled thinking there, but even a self-confessed atheist can see that the transformation that all of us in this room this morning want to see across Africa depends upon Christians rediscovering a passion 
for extending the rule of God as ordinary people like you and me respond to the gospel and submit to the rule of Jesus in our lives. And the life of David gives us the pattern for how God does that and how you and I can adjust our lives to get in step with it. So that's the first question. Second question we need to ask before plunging into the text is how on earth do you read Old Testament narrative? Good question. Because you see, when we come to 1 Samuel, we're dealing with a very particular type of literature. Uh, and just as you would you know, never read, I suppose, an email in the same way that you would read a poem or in a way that you would read a contract of employment, so when we come to ancient narrative in the Old Testament, you and I need to have certain filters in place if we're going to understand it correctly. Let me mention a couple of them very quickly. You might want to just jot these down and keep them to hand throughout the series. Filter number one. The book of 1 Samuel is about Jesus. See, we need to remember that under the divine authorship of the Holy Spirit, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. That's why, of course, when the risen Lord Jesus met the disciples on the Emmaus Road, Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's Luke 24:27. And as we uh, read about God establishing David as king over Israel, we're actually learning something about how God establishes the rule of Jesus over all his people in every generation. So that's filter number one. First Samuel is about Jesus. Filter number two, we are not David. We can't draw straight lines from David to us. The hero of the narrative is God. And uh, through the life of David, God is teaching us about God. And because God doesn't change, the way that God dealt with people 3,000 years ago is the way that he still deals with people today. That's filter number two. Filter number three, look for a big truth in the middle of the text. Now, you won't find this in every Old Testament passage, but you'll find it an awful lot. Old Testament stories were meant to be told orally. And um, unlike modern storytelling, modern novels, which uh, are usually chronological and usually have the big idea at the end, one of the characteristics of Hebrew narrative is to give us the big idea right in the centre of the story. And the big idea is a massive clue to its meaning. So in our passage today, the big idea, where we're going to spend most of our time, is in verse 7, right in the middle of the passage. So I hope you've got uh, 1 Samuel 16 open in front of you. Uh, Let me just quickly give you a word of context. Uh, Because the situation uh, at this point in the book is that Israel are in the Promised Land. The Ark of the Covenant is at Shiloh, which has become the centre of Israel's worship. 
And as White reminded us last Sunday morning, uh, Israel's worship has become corrupt and compromised by the weak leadership of Eli the priest and the wickedness of his sons. And God has responded to the faithlessness and immorality of his people by raising up Samuel. And Samuel is the first of the great prophets. He's a key figure in the book. Why? Because he's God's spokesman. That's what a prophet is. And as such, Samuel is the senior figure over Israel's king. So it's no surprise, is it, that when Saul disobeys the word of God, it is Samuel, in chapter 15, who tells him that God has rejected him as king. And now here, in chapter 16, the search is on for a new king, and in our passage I want to point out three things rather briefly to you this morning. And the first of those is God's eternal perspective. God's eternal perspective. You see, the drama in the passage arises from two completely different points of view, two different ways of seeing reality. So in verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And if you ask the Hebrew experts afterwards, they'll tell you that the word translated chosen is literally the word seen. So a more literal translation of what the Lord says would be, I have seen one of his sons to be king for me. But uh, when Samuel sees Eliab, he's unable to see him as God does. Verse 6. When Jesse's sons arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. After all, Eliab was tall, which in Samuel's day was a key requirement for a king. A king had to be physically impressive. But you see, that is not God's perspective. Because in verse 7, which is, as I've said, the key verse in the passage, we read these words. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, as I say, that is the key verse. And it's reminding us that when we come to make judgments about other people and ourselves, We usually see them in the same way that Samuel does here. And uh, there are so many different examples in our culture that we could think of. For example, obviously the most painful episode in this country's history, arose from an attitude that judged people according to the colour of their skin rather than the content of their character. Pornography, of course, would be another example, wouldn't it? What is so wrong about pornography, and there are many things that you could say about this, is that it conditions to think about other people, members of the opposite sex, in terms of the way that they look, their appearance, rather than their personality. 
And because we've been so deeply conditioned to look at them in the opposite way from God, well, the advertising industry knows, doesn't it, how to use pornography to persuade you and I to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. If we go a step further and ask, well, okay, you know, why is the divorce rate so high? Can I suggest that the main reason is because people date and choose their life partner on completely the wrong basis? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But we can't stop there. Uh, When we start thinking about the Gospel and about extending God's rule in the hearts of men and women, the problem with the way that we see ourselves and other people is far more serious. You see, when we think about whether a person might be effective and useful in Gospel ministry, we tend to think about what we know about them. And we're often far too quick to write them off. Uh, So we say, his heart, her heart, it's all wrong. And sometimes we make perhaps the harshest judgments about ourselves. But you see, that isn't actually the message of verse 7. Because a better translation of the last sentence in verse 7 would be this. Man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. Now, I want you to really focus and stay with me for the next couple of moments as I explain that. Because that does not mean that God chose David over Saul because David had a pure and perfect heart. It does not mean that. Because as the story unfolds, we're going to discover, aren't we, that David became an adulterer, a murderer and a liar. Now, God chose David, listen to this, because of what was in God's heart to make of him. It is God's heart reflecting his sovereign will and purposes which is the decisive factor. This is really, really important for us to understand. God made an everlasting covenant with David because God knew what he would make of David and what he would accomplish through him. And there are so many examples in history of this, aren't there? So, for example, if you and I had been on John Newton's slave ship in the late 1700s, uh, would we have seen him as a terrific candidate to become one of the most effective gospel ministers in history, the author of some of the most beautiful hymns in the English language, and the close friend and confidant of William Wilberforce who abolished slavery? Well, I don't think we would. Actually, John Newton wouldn't either. But God did. Or if we'd witnessed, perhaps, the foul-mouthed scheming of Chuck Colson. Some of you will know him, some of you won't, but he was part of President Nixon's um, cabinet, I suppose you'd call it, in the early 1970s. He was a foul-mouthed man, uh, totally caught up in the corruption of that administration. If we had seen him then, watched him being sent to prison, would you and I have seen him as the ideal choice to take the gospel to prisons right the way around the world? I don't think we would. 
Chuck Colson wouldn't either. But God did. So can we learn, friends, not to write other people off and even not to write ourselves off as being kind of unlikely candidates for useful, useful gospel service? Can we please remember that only God, only God, has a perfect perspective on people and their potential for useful service in the kingdom? So humble prayer rather than hasty judgments must be the order of the day. So that's the first thing we spent most of our time on, that God's eternal perspective. Secondly, please notice God's empowering spirit. Uh, So we've seen, haven't we, that God uh, did not choose David because David, David was a terrific guy, much better than Saul. God chose David and then set about developing the character in him that was not naturally present. And you can see the beginning of that process right at the very end of the passage in verses 12 and 13. Can we all see verses 12 and 13 in our Bibles? David has come in from the fields and uh, the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him, he's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Some of you might know, some of you might not, that the particular Hebrew word for someone being anointed or anointing is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which gives us our English word Messiah. Even more strikingly, In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated by the Greek word Christos. Isn't that striking? So at God's command, Samuel, Messiahs, or Christ's, David. Why does that matter? Well, in Old Testament times, uh, anointing was a very highly significant contractual agreement in which the person initiating the anointing pledged themselves to the person being anointed. So, when God commands Samuel to anoint David, God is obligating himself to David. And the immediate confirmation of that according to verse 13, is that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So, you see, as we then move on through the account of the rest of David's life, what we're doing is we are witnessing a life that is under the protection of God's promise and his blessing. Now, that doesn't mean David's always going to live a sinful life. He clearly doesn't. But it does carry certain guarantees with it. Let me mention two. First, it invests David with the gift of spiritual insight and comfort. Why do I say that? Well, read on in the text from verse 14. Can we see verse 14 in the Bible? Please just follow with me as I read it. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul... And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. 
Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who's with the sheep. So David goes to Saul. Now look down to verse 23. Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, whatever else is going on in that passage, reading that, is it any surprise that it is David, anointed by the Spirit of God in power, who wrote so many of the Psalms? And why have the Psalms been so precious for believers ever since David wrote them? It's because, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, the Psalms bring God's eternal perspective to bear on the everyday problems of the people of God. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Psalms turn those problems into prayer. And those are both hallmarks of the Spirit of God, the Comforter, promised by Jesus for all believers. But if the Spirit of the Lord gave David certain powerful pastoral gifts, the Spirit of the Lord also came with a very heavy cost. Because from this moment on, David's life is filled with problems. He might be the Lord's anointed, The outcome might not be in doubt, but he's not immediately on the throne. In fact, as we're going to see in our series, being the Lord's anointed simply attracts the hostility of all those people who are opposed to the rule of God in their lives. And for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, David, far from being on the throne, is a fugitive running away from people who are trying to kill him. Now, what on earth are we to make from that? Well, at the very least, it's a powerful reminder, I think, that if it matters to us to see the rule of God extending in the hearts of the people that we know and love, we should expect some heavy artillery. If we go on preaching the gospel, the outcome isn't in doubt, and uh, uh, many of David's psalms confirm that for us, but we mustn't expect it to be all plain sailing. There are very powerful spiritual forces working against us. So we've got to pray, and we've got to trust that God will take his word and empower it by his Holy Spirit so that as we share the gospel, people are turned away 
from their hostility and brought into the family of God. That's the second feature in this passage, God's empowering spirit. And lastly and briefly, the third thing I want you to notice in the passage uh, is God's forgotten son. God's forgotten son. Because in our last few moments, I want us to think about what chapter 16 is asking of you and me this morning. The clue, I think, is in verse 11. Uh, Jesse has just had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And uh, in verse 11, Samuel asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Now the word translated youngest in our Bibles is a very negative word. Uh, It carries the sense of being utterly inconsequential. Uh, Probably the best English equivalent is the word runt. So that in Jesse's eyes, David is not, not only the youngest, and therefore probably the smallest physically, but he's also the least important. He's the runt of the litter. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesse was a particularly nasty or abusive father. It doesn't mean that. Rather, I think it reflects the idea that in that culture, the father always gave the inheritance and the authority over the family estate to the oldest son. But God chooses David. And the important thing, I think, to get hold of here is that this is part of a a massive pattern in Scripture. That whenever God acts in a really significant way in the Bible, he often chooses to work through the people the culture rejects. So, it's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Joseph, not Reuben. And it's Moses, not Aaron. And with the women, even more strikingly, God works through those who are barren and unwanted. So it's Sarah, not Hagar. Leah, not Rachel, Ruth, not Naomi, and Hannah, not Penina. Friends, can you see that there is a pattern in Scripture of God working with the girl no one cares about and the son who is forgotten? And the point is that God doesn't work with them in spite of their weakness and rejectedness, but because of it. Because the salvation we need is entirely God's work. And of course that finds its perfect expression, doesn't it, in the life of the Lord Jesus. So as we close, can I ask you please to turn to Isaiah 53 in your Bible, and I just want to look at verse 2 with you Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 and we're going to let's make one comment about it and then we'll close 
So here we have, in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, we've got God's description, sorry, Isaiah's description of God's true Messiah. What does he say? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Do you see the pattern? And the challenge, I think, for us is that if we are serious this morning about wanting God to develop spiritual muscle in our character, it's going to come from knowing, really knowing, what the rejected Son of God went through for us and being willing to follow him, no matter what the cost. Because, you see, like David, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Like David, Jesus was left outside with the animals. But unlike David, Jesus was not just forgotten, he was forsaken by God so that you and I might become the true children of God forever. And because Jesus did that willingly and wholeheartedly, with nothing kept back, God has made him king forever. Now, you and I might not think that we are fantastically qualified for effective service, that we've been too weak, too sinful, too compromising, too much mess. That is not necessarily how God sees it. That is not how God sees it. God doesn't ask whether you've led a sinless life. He just asks whether you're willing to follow Jesus now. Not just casually, but wholeheartedly with absolutely nothing kept back. And friends, if you haven't yet done that, then why not do it this morning? You see, if you put it off, I'll tell you this, you'll probably never get around to it. So why not talk to God now and say to him that, yes, I do want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and I'm going to ask him for grace to do it. So instead of me praying now, like I normally do at the end of the service, we're going to have a moment of quiet. And I want to give you the opportunity uh, of praying in the quietness of your heart and saying those things to God. So let's be quiet for a moment.
And all God's people said, Amen.